First Kings chapter 2. We will uh, work through the whole chapter, but in the interest of time, I'm only going to read verses 1 through 12 at this time. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your son pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gideite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. And may God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me please? Again, our Father, we are thankful that you have spoken to us, and we pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would come and speak to us, that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that hearing his voice, his sheep would know him and follow him, that we would see him high and lifted up and offer ourselves to him properly and sincerely in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. The kingdom established. In this passage, David, King David passes away. And you notice that verse 10 says that he slept with his fathers. That's a common figure of speech in the Hebrew Bible. It's, it's not just a euphemism to avoid the word death. Because death is an unpleasant word. Now that phrase, slept with his fathers, it it carries a lot of weight or a lot of freight. Not the least of which is the implication 
that one day he'll wake up. The doctrine of the resurrection is in that figure of speech. He slept with his fathers. But for now, David has been laid to rest. What will happen to the kingdom of Israel? Things were falling apart in the days of the judges before they had a king. Of course, the first king Saul was a disaster. Then David was a good king, but there's plenty of trouble even on the watch of the good king. And then in his last days, we saw in the previous chapter, the previous message, there was more controversy. David's oldest son, Adonijah, tried to make himself king. But David kept his word to pass the kingship to Solomon. But now David is gone. Can it hold? Can the kingdom hold together? Well, that's king, the great king. Verse 12 closes the case. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. The kingdom was firmly established. We have a kingdom. We belong to a kingdom that is firmly established. Hebrews 12 28 says we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Even while the earth, the world as we know it, is being shaken to the core as old Martin Luther said, his kingdom is forever. Now I want to acknowledge that uh, the Old Testament scholar that I reference from time to time, uh, Ralph Davis, he has a simple two-point outline of this text that I cannot improve upon. Now, I'll reword it a bit. I'm simply not going to regurgitate the work of another man and call it a sermon, but I do want to acknowledge that uh, I'm going to follow his outline in my own words. But Davis says that this long chapter boils down to two ways that the kingdom was established. And I would carry that forward and say that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom we have received and to which we belong, is established in those same two ways. Now let's look at it. First in this passage, we see that the kingdom is established through obedience to the covenant. Through obedience to the covenant, the kingdom is established. Look at verse one. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, it may be a bit silly, but I 
have to say that this uh, scene reminds me of one of my favorite songs. That old song by Clarence Carter, Patches. Those of you that are old enough and appreciate the finer things remember Patches. I love it. People ask me sometimes, why do your children call you Papa? Everybody else's children call you Daddy. Now, I'm going to be honest with you all this morning. The main reason I decided I wanted my children when my first child was on the way to call me Papa was because in that song, Clarence Carter referred to his daddy as Papa in that song. That's not a joke. I like the song Patches, and that's why I have my children call me Papa. But you remember that line? One day, Papa called me to his dying bed, put his hands on my shoulders, and in tears he said, Patches, I'm dependent on you, son. I've tried to do my best. It's up to you to do the rest. That's what's happening here. David calls Solomon to his dying bed and tells him, it's up to you to do the rest. It's up to you to be strong and show yourself to be a man and obey the commandments of the Lord. Now look at verse 4. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That's a covenant God bound himself to David. We read about it a long time ago in 2 Samuel 7. Psalm 89 also gives an explanation of it. Covenant, the oath, the promise God made with David. And David, here on his deathbed, is telling Solomon, if you will be faithful, if you will be obedient to the Lord's covenant, your kingdom will be established. This may not come across as a very deep message. With all reverence to the word of God, we could say this is not exactly rocket science in this passage. Perhaps your marriage... is in a rough place. It's rocky. Have no reason to suspect any of y'all would be, but by the time anybody ever admits to me they got problems, it's usually too late and they won't listen to me. So I'll give you some free advice now. What can I do to make the relationship not rough and rocky, but secure and established. You spend a lot of money and a lot of time on books and seminars and counselors. 
But I tell you what'll fix your marriage and get your home settled and established, and I won't charge you a dime for it. Try keeping your vows. Your spouse may be crazy. Your spouse may be lazy, sick, whatever. You know what? You did not vow what they would do. You vowed what you would do. Love and cherish in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want for better or for worse. You find a couple that's been happily married for 60 years and you will find that they pretty much lived by their vows. And if one party at some point did not do a great job with their vows, the other party kept their vow anyway. They figured that was all tied up in that for worse part anyway. That's obedience to the covenant. And David is telling Solomon, there's your safety, there's your stability. Do not turn your back on the Lord's promise, on his word, on his oath, on his covenant. The kingdom is established through obedience to the covenant. Now secondly, and finally, we see that the covenant is established through the destruction of the enemy. The covenant is established through the destruction of the enemy. Look at verse 5. David says to Solomon, Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging himself in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on his belt, around his waist, and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there's also with you Shimei the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Baharim, Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do with him, to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Now, as David prepares to pass from the scene, here he tells Solomon to settle some unfinished business. He tells Solomon to be good to the sons of Barzillai, 
because Barzillai had been good to him when he was fleeing from Absalom. But David tells Solomon here on his deathbed not to let two men die in peace. Joab and Shimei. Now Joab, you remember, he was David's commander. He was a good commander. But twice when David replaced him, Joab killed the man David replaced him with and got his job back. Now, over the course of going through Samuel, I became increasingly sympathetic to Joab. I don't think he killed these men simply because he was power hungry. Could be wrong, but I believe, I think he believed at least he was saving the army from inept leadership. David put a man in there for political purposes who wasn't a good commander. Joab got rid of him. Nevertheless, the fact is, if you're the king, you cannot trust Joab. He has usurped David twice at least. And we read, we read in the last chapter, last week, that when Adonijah tried to beat Solomon to the punch and make himself king in contradiction to his father's oath, Joab, the commander, went with Adonijah, not David's choice of Solomon. So we see here David tells Solomon, you make sure Joab does not die peacefully in old age like I'm doing right now. Then he tells Solomon, not to let Shimei die in peace either. Now you remember Shimei. You remember when uh, David's son Absalom rebelled against his father and David had to flee. That Shimei came out and cursed David and his men and threw stones at him. Now David's men wanted to kill Shimei, but David said no. Then later on, after Absalom was killed and rebellion was quelled, Shimei came to David at the Jordan River and asked him for mercy. And David swore an oath that he would not kill him. But as David subtly reminds his son Solomon, I didn't swear an oath that you couldn't kill him. Now he tells Solomon to finish the job that his oath prohibited him from carrying out. Now once David is gone, Solomon takes care of both of these men. David told him not to let them die in peace. Solomon <coughs> dispatches Benaiah to dispatch Joab. And then Benaiah became commander in place of Joab. <clears throat> then with Shimei, Solomon told him to build a house in Jerusalem. As long as you stay in Jerusalem, you'll be safe. My father made a covenant. He wouldn't put you to death. As long as you stay where we can keep track of you, don't flee. I'll let you live. In other words, Solomon would not trust Shimei any further than he could throw him. 
And that arrangement worked for a while, and Solomon left him alone. But, but later on, a couple of Shimei servants ran away to Gath, and Shimei went to get his runaway servants back. And when he got back to Jerusalem, Solomon had Benai dispatched Shimei as well. And then we read that beyond these two that David mentioned on his deathbed, there were two others that Solomon got rid of. Now you remember Adonijah, Solomon's older half-brother, who tried to make himself king. Well, here in chapter 2, he goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, with a request. Look at verse 16. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So there are a lot of names to keep up with in this message. But you remember Abishag. She was that beautiful young virgin that they got to snuggle with King David in the bed when he couldn't get warm. And you remember the text clarifies, emphasizes that there were no relations between David and Abishag. So Adonijah hopes this will convince Bathsheba, who in turn will convince Solomon that it would not be an abomination for him to have Abishag. But when Bathsheba takes this to Solomon, he smells a rat. Look at verse 22. King Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar, the priest, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah. There have been no relations between David and Abishag, but in the eyes of the public, she was essentially David's concubine. And for Adonijah to have her as his wife would have been like what we read of Absalom having his way with David's harem on the rooftop. It would have rallied the troops to Adonijah and started another civil war in Israel. So David has benign dispatch Adonijah as well. And then this man, Abiathar the priest, look at verse 26. And the Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anatoth. To your state, for you deserve death, but I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. Abiathar had gone with Adonijah, the priest. He went with the brother who tried to steal the kingdom. And though Abiathar the priest deserved to die, Solomon would not have him executed 
But he did have him defrocked as a priest. Verse 27 shows that this fulfilled the word of the Lord to the priest Eli way back in 1 Samuel 2 that his family would have lose the priesthood. Once he's got rid of, rid of Abiathar, Solomon makes Zadok, whom you remember anointed him king, priest in place of Abiathar. Now once Solomon deals with these four men, Adonijah, Abiathar, Joab, and Shimei, look at the last word of the chapter, look at the end of verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Now that's an in-depth chapter, a lot of names, a lot of history to remember, but this is what it boils down to. Solomon destroyed his enemies. Those are the two keys to establishing the kingdom. Obedience to the covenant and destruction of the enemy. Now we said at the beginning that those are also the ways that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is established. Obedience to the covenant and the destruction of the enemy. Our Lord Jesus secured his kingdom and won his crown through obedience. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He said, I came down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. Obedience to the Father. My much beloved professor from seminary, Jonathan's much beloved professor from seminary, Dr. Douglas Kelly says, God sent his own son to live a life of deepest and fullest loving obedience. In so doing, the incarnate son of God obeyed from the heart in every thought, word, and action all the holy will of the heavenly father, thereby fulfilling the original intentions of God in his creation of Adam and his posterity. By his active obedience, Christ fulfills the ultimate purpose of a covenant with Adam. Jesus secured his kingdom and our place in his kingdom through his life of perfect obedience. There was a great theologian Hard to believe, but getting on a hundred years ago now. Name of Gresham Machen. He was a 
true Bible believer who got run out of the Presbyterian church up north. He got kicked out of Princeton Seminary. Basically, because he believed the Bible. That's where he taught. He was a professor. He founded a seminary, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. I go up there and take class from time to time myself. He was the founder of a denomination, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He took ill and died rather suddenly at a relatively young age. And on the day he died, he dictated a telegram to his best friend. And this was the last thing this great theologian ever said. This recorded. Quote, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. End quote. As I prepare to die and go meet God, my only hope is that Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient. That's how the kingdom we have been given was established and secured for us. In the obedience of Jesus Christ all the way to the point of death. The death of the cross for our sins. Our disobedience. And his kingdom will finally be established when he comes again. Riding on a white horse. And from his mouth will come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And John says that he saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne. Sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's what Jesus says he will do when he comes again. He will conquer and destroy all his and our enemies. And on that day, there will be one place of safety. One place to be firmly established when the fire comes down. And that is in his covenant, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay.
on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's our kingdom. The kingdom that cannot be shaken. Kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.